Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. I'm excited to be joined today by Edward Dusenberry the first violinist in the legendary Takash String Quartet and author of Beethoven for a Later Age, Living with the String Quartets. Ed and I discuss playing it safe for ensembles, the lab that is a string quartet, Beethoven and his metronome markings, and how playing in a string quartet is like acting. I hope you enjoy the interview. You can't really talk to Takash without talking about Beethoven. Because these two composers, both Beethoven and Bartok, Beethoven, because of his deafness, because of his distaste for the current status quo in many ways, wrote these changes, wrote out his, fixed his own problems in his music. Bartok does that in a different way, uh, you know, a hundred years later. Can you talk about this kind of life affirmation that works out? And of course, this is a great opportunity just to plug um, your incredible book, Beethoven for a Later Age by Edward Dusenberry, is a fantastic overview kind of storytelling behind not only the Beethoven quartets, but how your quartet found its voice and basically used these quartets to affirm probably your own ideas about life and about family and about love and about community, um, all these things that these composers do. I'd be curious to hear your interpretation of Beethoven's idea or Bartok's idea of this life affirmation of Mm-hmm. this need to change the world through music? Well, I think, I mean, a string quartet seems to have inspired the greatest composers to, in a way, take the most chances. So if you look at Beethoven's quartets, starting with his Opus 18s and going through to his late quartets, or same with Bartok, starting with the first, going to the last, they're really radical in the way they experiment. And it's not just in the ways that you can obviously here to do with tonality or structure or the way you might juxtapose one emotion against another. It's also to do with the relationships between the players in the quartet. Mm. That changes a lot. And so you can hear, I think, in both of those pieces, this amazing tension between four individuals who are given voices, which should be really expressive in their own right. And yet somehow or other, we're all supposed to make some kind of unified effect at the end and that's really a a great symbol for what we all struggle with in life how to be expressive as individuals and to feel like we can manage to be true to ourselves in some sense but also to have a a duty and a responsibility to other people and uh, which is of course is extremely important and and very hard as well in terms of rehearsing I feel like the more an orchestra can play like a string quartet, the more successful we can experiment and like you talk about not do things as rehearsed. Can you talk about that idea of a concert as not being a finished result and always an ongoing process? And I would also ask, should quartets or orchestras ever play it safe? (laughs) Uh, Should they ever play it safe? I mean, my instinct is to say absolutely not. 
<laughs> but if I'm being completely honest, um, you know, when you're up against it with a brand new contemporary piece and yeah. it's your first performance, there are certain like pragmatic choices you make. You definitely have what you might call meeting points every little while. And I mean, that, I suppose, is an element of playing safe. So I have to say depends a little bit on the circumstances. But I think the point of rehearsing eventually is to create a trust between the players that within a certain framework that you've talked about emotions or just the, the character that you want to convey or the tempo or the type of sound you want to make, that's great. That's a foundation. But then hopefully within a concert, that trust means that there is much more of an element of flexibility. And I think the, the best analogy is really with actors on stage. You know, they might be doing a performance of King Lear seven times a week. They all know their parts very well, their speeches, and of course they also know exactly what's going to happen in the play. But as an audience member, you don't, you don't want to get that impression from them. You want to feel that when you get to the end of King Lear, and there's that wonderful kind of forgiveness scene with Cordelia forgiving her father, just one example, you don't want to feel that that's the scene that they played out already six times this week. And the way that they manage to convey that it's fresh and that they are acting in the moment is to do with how carefully they're listening to each other. So if there's just one slight intonational difference in the way a phrase or a word is emphasized, then if the other actor is listening really carefully, that will affect their own delivery. Similarly with body language. And it's very much true for us in a, in a string quartet. But I think that going back, trust is the thing that's the most important in that because that's what allows you to kind of let go of your own ego in a way and your own insecurities that we all inevitably have. But when it's working well in a quartet, you can kind of check those at the door and, and just go on an adventure. You've been in Boulder for about 30 years. You immersed yourself in this uh, Hungarian Verbunkosh style, which I feel doesn't just apply to music of Haydn or, or Liszt or Bartok, but it, it really is the heart and soul of the Austro-Germanic and European tradition, like this fire, this mm -hmm. passion that many musicians are not necessarily trained and you really have to experience it in Hungary or with Hungarian musicians. Can you talk about your musical preferences before and after you became immersed with this style and this way of life mm -hmm. and how that changed you? Sure. I mean, I had two very different teachers, equally wonderful. In London at the Royal College, I studied with a guy called Felix Andreevsky, who was a Ukrainian violinist. And he had actually had a, a reputation back in uh, when he was teaching at the Central School in, in Moscow for being really pretty ferocious disciplinarian. But by the time he got to the Royal College, he was easing up a bit. And although he did teach technique, he was an extraordinarily inspiring teacher, very, very colorful. And also he would give you ideas, wonderful images to work with. But he was very alive to the fact that it had to come from you. He would sort of criticize me. Well, you're just doing what I told you to do. That's not that's that's not good enough. You know, it's, you've got to inhabit it yourself. So I left my lessons with him just wanting to play the whole time. Dorothy DeLay was great for me in a different sort of a way and her assistant teacher. They kind of wanted to firm things up a little bit. So, you know, maybe for the day that you're not feeling quite so inspired or, you know, you feel a bit sick or something like that, but you've still got all the basics there that can get you through. So I found the combination great. I have to say, when I joined the Tokach, really, I was incredibly lucky with my three friends and colleagues, Karari, Gabor Mai, and Andras. 
Feyer, who's on Rashi, is obviously still in the, in the group. They were so supportive and welcoming to me and never condescending. I think when someone new joins, especially someone as young as I was, they, they, could, have, they could have made life quite difficult and they were really so nice. And there was such a sense of adventure and fun in the way that they played. And, you know, it took me definitely some time to find my feet and to, as you say, get used to a certain uh, approach to music making. There were certain things, obviously, that I felt very comfortable with. Otherwise, the whole thing wouldn't have worked. But, you know, it's, it's fragile when you join a quartet. And I think the thing that helped the most was a couple of things, both their attitude, their incre incredible supportiveness, and also the whole Boulder community and the, and the university somehow allowed me to ease into that position. You kind of talk a lot about your relationship with like Shupanzai, the mm. uh, original violinist. And I think of, you know, many symphonic works or larger choral works were, were not played sometimes in the composer's lifetime. But the string quartet was truly the lab in which the composer could experiment. And I feel like Beethoven is a populist in his symphonies, but in a string quartet, he's, a, he's the innovator of all time. And of course, he innovates in other genres as well. But can you talk about just thinking about Mozart's string quartets, Haydn, Mozart, Dittersdorf, Von Hall in the string quartet? Same with Beethoven to some extent in his string quartets with all these other, Spohr, all these composers slash performers who were probably, like you talk about in your book, Beethoven for a later age, they're probably giving him feedback. And, and of course, we know about Beethoven, Brahms, they would generally not incorporate too much other feedback into their works. Can you just talk about like that lab setting and maybe that feeling of camaraderie with these generations from hundreds of years ago? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, very rich area to talk about. I think in the case of Mozart, you've also got to imagine that chamber music for Mozart was not such a thing of like lots of rehearsals. He would bring some parts over to a bunch of friends and they'd sit down and read them. And <laughs> Mozart maybe wasn't imagining quite the type of way that we mm -hmm. generally work these days. And that, that creates a challenge for us because when, when you're playing a concert, an audience doesn't want to feel that we've got no idea what's coming around the corner. <laughs> you know, that's not, what, that's not what you guys have signed up for, yeah, when you listen to us. But on the other hand, that element of spontaneity of being surprised by oh, that's, what happened over there what's Andras doing or you know what's 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 Harumi there what's what's that in the viola part Richard what are you doing over there that's that that spirit of spontaneity and surprise and delight we have to retain that with many hours of rehearsing mm -hmm. as well so that's one aspect by the time Beethoven comes it's a little bit different and Razumovsky his patron who commissioned the, the three quartets realized that musicians needed a bit more of a structure to rehearse and yet he sort of created one of the first residencies so that mm -hmm. players could really work on on things and get them to a higher level and I think Schuppenzich and his buddies it was pretty tough playing those quartets the first time and for me when I first joined the quartet you know I was quite intimidated as well and I found it quite most of the time I found it quite helpful reading these stories that actually first performances were a bit shaky and you know it took people a bit of a while to work out what they were doing. I didn't find it quite so reassuring to read that Schuppensich got fired as first violinist <laughs> after the first performance of Opus 127. That story wasn't so helpful to me. But to your thing about the lab, I mean, actually, I think Beethoven was more uh, influenced and more 
listening to the musicians than we might think. He's got that kind of stereotypical sense of someone who's fiery and stubborn and doesn't listen to people. But for example, at the end of Opus 127, in a rehearsal, the replacement first violinist, Joseph Böhm, who took over from Schuppensich and then played the second concert, which went much better. Hmm. He was Hungarian, actually. So he, at least this is his version of events. He suggested to Beethoven a different tempo at the end of 127. And Beethoven apparently was like, yeah, yeah, that, that works better. So I'd be even more convinced by this story if I could hear Beethoven's side of it. But I think we can assume that Beethoven did actually, there was some real interaction both ways between the composer and his musicians. And the, the other thing that's poignant for me is that at the end of his life, Beethoven was so isolated with his deafness and he, he didn't have many family and friends. And I think some of his best and most enriching interactions were with these musicians. Mm -hmm. And in the works, he kind of creates sometimes these ideal conversations and interactions and dialogues, which were sadly lacking in his own life. And you mentioned about the, the Tempe, there's the great metronome debate. I know in the, in the symphonies, Beethoven went back at the end of his life, presumably because he wasn't satisfied with the tempes that were being taken. But the string quartets, he's not necessarily writing metronome markings. For the Opus 18s, he went back later. I think he was asked by his publisher okay. to come up with some. His metronome markings are quite controversial. They're sometimes extremely fast yeah. for the quartets. And we are not very rigid about that. I'm afraid to say that if we find ourselves playing a tempo that happens to be the one that he's requested, then we sort of pat ourselves on the head and feel very, very pleased with ourselves. But there are certainly plenty of occasions when we don't do that and we justify that perhaps, you know, we don't know how accurate his metronome was. We also don't know if it was, you know, a long time later, what else he was doing that day. Maybe he was trying to finish his ninth symphony. Yeah. You know? he had a lot of coffee or something. Right. And, and also there's the matter of acoustics. I think the tempo at which you play something depends a lot. If you're in a big resonant palace, then you need to slow things down. If you're in a small dry space or if you've got a microphone right next to you, then you're going to play faster. So I don't think you can be too rigid, but it's, it is interesting with the late quartets, uh, second violinist Carl Holtz, he, wrote down a lot of metronome markings that mm. presumably had to do with their first rehearsals. And that's quite interesting to pay attention to. And I know that a big object of contention is your audition piece, the Opus 59, the Razumovsky, the, the number three, the last Allegro con fuoco or Allegro non tropa. Mm -hmm. It's not non tropa. What is that metric? I that? think it's, uh, it's, that's a good question. I think it's just Allegro, but it's certainly not non, it's, there's certainly no it's, qualifying thing. Yeah, it's not nothing. It could be Allegro Molto. You've caught me there. I should yeah. really know that. As you mature musically, do you find yourself slowing down? And a second question of that, do you generally in a performance go a little faster, a little slower than a rehearsal? I, I, I very much like your assumption that I'm maturing musically. That's a very nice. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take that. It's, it's tricky. I mean, I think as you get older, you do have a different perspective on things. I think in that last movement, since you mentioned it, 59.3, I've become more aware over the years that it's a very lively, fast, exciting movement, but it comes out of quite a lot of turmoil and suffering in the early mu music and also in Beethoven's life at the time. So if it's too fast, it sounds a little bit flippant. You know, it sounds like a, a parody of joyful music. You want something that sounds majestic and joyful and mm -hmm. in, in that sort of way. So things do change. I think it probably would be risky to say that it's just a matter of linear progress. You know, I think one plays things differently. 
And there's certainly some things I played in a certain way or we played as a group 15 years ago, which, you know, I'm very happy with and enjoy very much. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to play it like that now, but it's not necessarily that one thing's better than the other. You, you have conversations with your younger selves and those debates are not straightforward. It's not always a case of the older self, you know, telling the younger self, well, you know, young man, this is how things should be. I, I think it's more complicated than that. And in the rehearsal versus the performance? It's adrenaline related. I think um, our first outing with a new piece tends to be pretty up there in the tempo. Um, and then if we play a piece for five, six, seven concerts, things kind of shake out and settle in. Having said that, you might well find you can only learn a certain amount in a rehearsal. You know, a concert is worth about 10 rehearsals at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And especially to do with things, I'm sure it feels the same for you as a conductor, that you know, certain things with pacing particularly can feel a certain way in a rehearsal. And it's only really when you get in a concert that you, you feel, oh, yeah, we've got to move forward a bit more, or this climax doesn't have quite enough build-up to it, comes out of the blue too much. Or you, know, you, just, you just become more aware of those things on stage. Beethoven as a sense of, I mean, the tempo, where the beat is placed, to me, that feels like his personality. Can you talk about where the beat is? And Beethoven, there's this sense of go. A lot of his music, it's, it's go to the goal, go to the end point, as opposed to Brahms, who might be more on the beat. But Beethoven sometimes feels ahead of the beat. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's interesting. It maybe depends, obviously, on the particular piece and time mm -hmm. of life. So I think there are, and that is something that I'm, I'm surprised when I go back and listen to some of our Decca recordings, some of the faster movements i can sort of hear a little bit the uh early morning caffeine at breakfast to get us going and then you know 10 a.m we're kind of really going for it and there's definitely a lot of forward direction and i think that is appropriate often for beethoven's temperament but it's it's impossible to generalize in the late quartets one of the things that makes them so difficult is that he moves away from that so something like the thanksgiving movement to opus 132 which is this very still chorale Beethoven of all people seems to be going for almost a sense of time stopping. I think as a musician, the way one note goes to the next one is the storytelling. And so there still is some line even in that really peaceful, ethereal music. So I think later on in his life, he mixes that up quite a lot. And maybe the experience of playing the late quartets is that then when you go back to the Opus 18s, I don't feel quite so frantic with them as I maybe did 20 years ago. You guys are a world treasure and definitely a boulder staple and um, something that has been around for decades and will be around for decades. Check out uh, Beethoven for a Later Age, all the secrets behind the Beethoven quartets and what it's like to be in the Takach Quartet. I'm joined by Ed Dusenberry. Ed, it was so amazing to speak with you today. Thanks so much, it was great to chat. Thank you for joining us. I encourage you to check out Maestro Dusenberry's book, Beethoven for a Later Age, Living with the String Quartets. You won't be disappointed. You can always find more information at onesymphony.org. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being part of the music. Music